This is the Vorpal Network. Welcome to Dice Monkey Radio. This is the first bonus episode, and it's very special. So we're going to be talking about the newest edition of D&D, which has been announced today, which is the 9th of January. This should be coming out on the 11th of January. Um... Normally, we have a very structured content, but today it's just going to be sort of a free-for-all because we have five other guest hosts on the show today. Um, episode three is currently being edited. Uh, that should be out soon, but in the meantime, here's the bonus episode. Today we have Tim from Dice Food Lodging. Hi there. We have Jen of Genisodes. Hi. We have Michael the, of the Online Dungeon Master. Hello, all. We have Michael of the id DM. Hello. And we have Gary of GM Sarley Games. Hey. <laughs> so, the big news today was that 5th edition, well, they didn't ever call it 5th edition. It's the, uh, the newest iteration of D&D is going to be coming out uh, probably within the next couple of years. But in the meantime, they're going to be doing a big, huge mass playtest with everybody. Um, there was rumor that there was going to be some big announcement, but nobody knew, quite knew what it was. Did you guys see this coming? Well, there's speculation. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely speculation, and it's been sort of loosely on my radar that something was bubbling. And, you know, obviously people are like, uh-oh, 5th edition. Mm-hmm. But uh, nothing, nothing specific until today. Yeah, and it's only been four years since... Uh, since the fourth edition came out, but um, a lot of people have been complaining about that. But really, it's going to be six or seven years before the act, the game itself actually ever finally debuts. Well, I mean, I always... fourth edition came out in mid two thousand eight, right? Yeah. So if it comes out in twenty thirteen, which is what a lot of people are speculating now, that'll be five years. That's true. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be. An, there's going to probably be another year in there. Because they're going to require time for the printing and and everything like that. It actually there's there's quite a bit of turnaround, so I predict that they're going to come out with it in 2014 to coincide with the um, the 40th anniversary of D and D. Uh huh. Well, I can tell you that the um, um, the turnaround time for them to develop a uh, a new uh, core rules of the a new core rules edition is. Um, a, a solid, a solid two years uh, mm. that they're actually working on it in one form or another, and uh, if they're if they're uh, including uh, um, if they're including uh, uh, fans uh, more directly in the process at earlier stages, that might stretch it out, you know, quite a bit. So, mm. so, uh, um, so that can. Uh, uh, so I think uh, 2014 seems like a, a reasonable uh, a reasonable time frame for it because mm. they've clearly already been working on it for a little while and they're and they're they'd probably be anticipating uh, you know just a little bit of extra time to account for uh, uh, to account for uh, um, uh, the, the the extra time necessary to have discussions with more people. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because it's it looks like they've been having some play testing for a little while with friends and family, and a lot of the legends and lore articles have sort of indicated the directions they've been heading. Yeah, I think since Monty Cook got hired and has been doing the legends of the lore, I think that always brought something up to me personally. Like I thought that something was going on, and like what are they doing? So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, that was the one where shortly after he he joined the the group again. Folks were saying, I think it was on Margaret Weiss Productions boards about how, oh yeah, Margaret said, oh sure, he's working on fifth edition, and that, I think that was the one where a lot of people finally said, yeah, this is this is probably in the works sooner rather than later. Yeah, and and it makes sense because they were working on fourth edition for, you know, um, like Gary said, for a couple of years before it ever came out. There was a lot of things in third edition that they began to work on that sort of began to indicate fourth edition and. Uh, that includes the Star Wars Saga edition. That that really heavily indicated fourth edition. So I think that instead of them coming out with books that are incorporating rules that they're thinking about using, instead they've been using that Legends and Layers to sort of gauge people's reactions. And now they're just very they're doing a lot more publicly. Yeah, and I remember even last year, back in February of 2011, uh, New BDM put up a post predicting and quite accurately in some ways what is going on right now and what was happening um it seems like over the last few months so when i heard about it today it, it in some ways it seemed like a, a poorly kept secret but it was it was pretty exciting to be following the news online this morning and you know i just jumped back into dming after about 15 20 years away from D. so fourth edition is really all i know recently mm-hmm. uh, so i'm still wrapping my head around fourth edition and now there's a new edition coming out, which I think is a is a cool thing. But also, it's like I I like fourth, so I don't want to. Uh, I'll be curious to see where it goes. I'm open minded. How yeah. do you How do you guys? Oh, go ahead, Jen. I was gonna say I'm curious to see what people are going to do with 4E now. You know, like with everything, if there's books still coming out, and who's going to purchase them, and who's going to still play it while people are still you know on the edge of whatever this next version is. Yeah, because a lot of people are going to be dropping their fourth edition games because there's going to be these, this play test of fifth edition. So a lot of people That's are going to. That's true. Want, yeah. They're going. They're. It's not going to be like with third edition where people continue to play for the next year until fourth edition came out. It's. I think I imagine a lot of people are going to sort of drop fourth edition. I know that I'll still probably end up picking up a lot of the fourth edition books because simply because I'm a completionist and the, I was kind of excited when. Uh, when Wizards wasn't going to be doing Saga Edition simply because Saga Edition anymore, simply because it meant that I would finally be able to get caught up with all the Saga Edition books. <laughs> so I think it's going to be sort of the same with uh, with Fourth Edition. I'll finally be able to get all the books that I've that I've been behind on, um, especially once they start to go on discount when when Fifth Edition comes out. Well, so, I'll say so, that this phenomenon of you know people, what are they going to do? Are they going to keep playing Fourth Edition or not? does kind of argue for them trying to get it out sooner rather than later. No, not to say I want, to, I want them to rush it. I don't. But that's why I'm guessing it's more likely, you know, Gen Con 2013 is what they're aiming for rather than 2014. But just a guess. And, and actually, you know, with, with it coming out in Gen Con, which is somewhat towards the end of the year, I know it's really, it's kind of halfway through the year, but um, they could be, they could come out with it at Gen Con and then sort of, sort of ramp up to um, to having it as a big, huge event in 2014 where you've got these rules out, people have been playing it, and now here's you know a huge rush of new books and all these different things and um, possibly doing their big, huge back catalog. Okay, um, so, so related to that, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I was looking at the, uh, the D&D Experience Con website, and D&D XP sounded like it was going to get wrapped up into Gen Con as of 2013. Yeah, I saw yeah, that. Right. They were going to yeah, they weren't going to have it be as part of its own its own thing. 
its own like whole like track as part of Gen Con or some such. Yeah, I'm, I mean, not, I'm not sure exactly. There wasn't a whole lot of detail on that, but I thought that uh, was is itself uh, very telling in terms of um, what you can track from watching a company do things and sort of how it has to announce things ahead of time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's far- the same company. Like Baldman Games does both DDXP, and they're also involved with the the the, the stuff at Gen Con too. Correct? Oh, okay. mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I mean, they don't, they don't own Gen Con. That is a separate yeah. company. But they, I'm pretty sure they're the ones who run the D&D events at Gen Con. So mm-hmm. I, I, my guess is it's just, honestly, it just kind of sounds like DDXP is just going to go away. And that will just be the branding they put okay. on the Wizards of the Coast events at Gen Con. But that, again, just a guess on my part. Okay. What do you guys think about the future name? Like, gotcha. currently they're calling it um, D&D Next. But what do you guys think that Well, I mean, on the... Be? On the surface, it sounds like they're trying to ad- avoid uh, more sort of edition war noise. Mm. Although, you know, sometimes that's good noise and sometimes that's interesting noise. But mm. I wouldn't necessarily spin that positively. And especially since one of the things that they seem to have said, at least in the, the bits and pieces that I've read, is that it's trying to collect the player base. And I mean, it's not collected. You don't say that for like a new edition, like yeah. third ed or like fourth ed did not particularly try to collect second ed and third ed and, you know, OSR kind of people under fourth ed's rule set. It went on in its, in its own way and it was kind of interesting and it was a different game. Like it, yeah. it, it felt very different. Mm-hmm. So it makes me wonder if they're going to do things like um, write systemless kinds of books as opposed to things that are hard tied in and then maybe push uh, push things on a sort of uh, database level. Oh, okay. So you can sort of pick what system you're going to play with and interact with that through something like D&D Insider. I think um, I think that what they're they're most likely to do is uh, um, just just design the rules to have uh, layers um, layers of complexity layers of, of style and so that you can you, so that you can have the same basic game play in very different styles so it can do you know old school um, and it can do something that feels like fourth edition for that matter um, and. Uh, uh, I, I think that that is that's certainly doable. I mean, that's something I'm I've been you know trying to do with uh, um, with uh, the E twenty system, uh, and I, I I think it I think it works. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I honestly won't know until the thing's complete and people start playing it. You know, in in, uh, in large numbers, but um, but I, I believe uh, uh, I believe that that's certainly within the within the realm of what you can do with this set of rules. You just have to. Um, um, carefully flag what things are okay. These are advanced rules. These are basic rules, or, or something like that. Things that are very easy to turn on and off, and don't completely change the way the, the, way the rest of the system works. And uh, I, I believe that really can be done. Now, do you think they might do a come out with a sort of a basic rules and an advanced rules book, like two separate books, or do you think that there'll just be pieces of the rules throughout that'll be we'll use these for more basic stuff and use these for more advanced stuff? I would suspect they'd put it in 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 one book and then just 
you know, flag things as being, you know, advanced combat rules or something like that. Or, uh, um, I mean, they, they, they might separate it as, you know, separate, you know, distinctly separate parts of the same chapter. They might do it by section. There's, there's any number of different ways that they could, um, that they could, uh, approach that. Um, but ultimately that, that, that comes down to just a, a design and readability, you know, um, you know, layout decision of, you know, whether the book becomes too cumbersome if they put it all in one book. But I think it can fit in one book because, you know, I mean, again, you know, my game is fitting in one book. It's it's bigger than any of the single core books for for D anD D. But they have three books to spread it over. You know, assuming they yeah. don't go for like a giant rule cyclopedia kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it's I, I think uh, I think they're unlikely to to try to separate them into into separate books necessarily. They uh, I, I could see them if they if they do a thing like Player's Handbook Two, Player's Handbook Three, like they were with the the last couple of editions, that they might. Um, Add more advanced rules in later iterations of core uh, rule books, uh, but uh, but I uh, um, I don't think that they would separate that from the very beginning. That they would keep at least some of it mm. in the, the very first set of books because otherwise it, they ha- they have to have that right out of the gate, or else you know they won't be able to appeal to the different types of uh, games. That's true. Right. Um, I know that with the way that. Um these sort of introductory rules work for BattleTech. They actually have the pages color coded as like these are the beginner, these are the intermediate, and these are the advanced. And it'd be really interesting to see if they if they did something like that in D anD D, where you have the combat chapter of the book, and then it, that's separated. And the further you read into the the chapter, the more additional advanced the rules get. You know. Right, That'd but I mean, how it. how how much more advanced do like the sort of relatively basic tactics of D and D get than you know sort of That's saying true. okay, like I'm going to add in my stances and use grappling or like some of the more obscure rules that are always made jokes about. Well, uh, th- th- think, think about it uh, um, this way: like it, it, it the most basic type of uh, tactical rules, um, you might have it where it doesn't require you to use a grid at all; it's just abstract. And uh, I remember when I started playing D anD D, that's actually how I played. I mean, now I use miniatures all the time, but um, but it's it's quite possible and actually a lot of fun to, to play without a grid. Um, and so they might have you know like a basic thing that's for you know how to run combat without having to have a grid and miniatures and all that, and then how to have uh, um, uh, you know, the next step up might be, you know, uh, basically, you know, using miniatures in play. And then the, the next one up after that might include really advanced, uh, uh, and more complex, uh, um, systems like, you know, stances or whatever. Well, I could see, for instance, something like opportunity attacks. That's not going to be the most basic if you're going to go gridless, let's say. Um, you know, you just have certain attacks that if you're next to somebody, here's a melee attack. If you're not, here's a range attack or an area of effect. And exactly how close or far you are, that's just up to, you know, DM adjudication. And, and that's, mm-hmm. like you said, the way it used to be in, in the old days. And then if you want to get into the more sophisticated stuff, the, the more tactical combat stuff, then you add in things like opportunity attacks and shifting from fourth edition or five foot step from third edition. Hmm. Um, and, and those are just not part of the game in the, the early steps. And I think your idea about having either color coded pages or sections called out um, within each chapter, like the combat chapter, here's a tap. Uh, you can add this in if you want to, but keep in mind that that will, it'll change your game. Mm-hmm. And you know, that um, one thing that I was thinking is that there's a lot of people who hate powers and there's a lot of people who love powers and said so they don't want their, them to remove powers. Um, but it'd be difficult in the rules to have powers and no powers. However, 
if you were to have something like in the rules, you have your classes and everything, and then you say, if you don't want to use powers, here's how you advance. If you do want to have powers, here's how you advance, and here's the powers. You could do that as well. Um, because really, you could run 4th edition without powers if you chose to, if you weren't playing any of the um, classes that had to have powers, like the the wizard or um, or the cleric. You could you could easily do all um, you know your basic melee and ranged attacks. So... I think it'll probably just be different classes. Like some classes will have powers. And this is, if you want to play a game without powers, let's say here's this subset of classes that you will use. And if you want the, like the more advanced you know, modular stuff will, will be classes that do have powers. Mm-hmm. And something that I'm really curious to see what they do is the wizard, since you mentioned that, because I think a lot of people want fancy magic. I think that's one of the big things that's different about fourth edition. You don't have that, you know, memorize your spells in the morning. You, once you use them, they're gone. Um, and, and will that come back or not? I, I think it probably will just because I think players who, who don't like fourth edition will probably really want that. Uh, but at the same time, will they, will there be something to nod to the player who wants to be a wizard, but still have magic they can use all the time rather than reverting to a crossbow or throwing darts or something like that? Um, I don't know. I think the Pathfinder handled that really well, because if you look at it, um, all the zero level spells are basically outwills. You don't lose them. And I think that really the wizard kind of, they basically made everything fancy in magic with fourth edition. And that there are certain powers that are, you can only use once per day or once per encounter, um, similar to Vancean. Whereas um, with something like 3rd edition, it's, you about the, just had your basic attacks for, for fighters, and then you, you had the ability to lose the really tough attacks that wizards had. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I mean, yeah. even for, for different melee classes, such as uh, the monk, he, he had um, different kinds of uh, once per day kinds of exactly, things, yeah. but they were in the form of uh, melee attacks. So, I mean, that's just a sort of like a prototypical ver- form of like the, uh, the dailies. And mm-hmm. I think, I think where, where some of the really, really handy things about fourth ed is how sort of simple they made uh, being able to manage your combat systems Work. Oh yeah, um, and but I, you know, I, I, it's it's interesting to me that we're you know talking about books and books and books, and we already know that Wizards has made a lot of progress doing uh, moving a lot of their content online, mm-hmm. and um, the as far as the market goes, and how much they want PDFs or other sort of uh, apps and um, interactive technology based kind of things. And so I think that if, if we're going to really try and look forward, um, we need to also consider getting away from like the strict idea of like a paper book with color coding when you can like tap a toggle that says, uh, turn on this set of rules and this set of rules and this set of rules. And then you never even have to skip past other stuff. If that's not what you're actively playing with. That's true. Um, I'm really, I'm interested in seeing how they're going to market this. You know, they're going back and looking through all the other editions. They're going and talking to players and doing the play tests and who they're going to market to. Because obviously when 4E came out, they lost a lot of people who loved 3E and then Pathfinder came out. Like, And how are they going to get new players in too while all trying to, to make these rules work? 
for for a new addition. Well, yeah, I think the, the new players are going to be the most difficult because the the focus of fourth edition is look look at this awesome new stuff and how fancy it is. Um, whereas this one's going to be much more focused on trying to attract the the people who used to play. Right. Yeah, I and, think. And, uh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, um, I think that what they're doing is uh, that by by getting um, by doing the the basically an open kind of beta thing as they develop the the rules. Um, part of the idea there is that that in itself is a marketing uh, thing. It it uh, it gets people invested in the game early. And right. I mean, I I know when I was uh, doing the the earliest stages of V uh, twenty, just just the fact that the the designer for the game was on the forums all the time talking to them and re- responding to their ideas and and uh, um, engaging in discussion directly and uh, then putting, you know, rule suggestions out and then getting direct feedback. That kept people really highly engaged all the time. And, and um, I can't imagine the scale of that that they could get with uh, something like D&D. Um, it's, uh, it's something that obviously takes a lot of time, but that in itself becomes a marketing thing because it gets people on board your edition before your edition even comes out. And um, and I, I think that that will ultimately work really well for them. It worked. It worked for Pathfinder, and uh, and uh, it seems to be working for for E twenty. And I'm, I'm sure that's exactly why they're doing it. Yeah, and you can. I mean, even just the fact that it was covered today in the New York Times and Forbes on CNN. I mean, already just D and D is out there. I even had some friends who don't play would send. They sent me an email today. They're like, "Oh, I know you play D and D. Did you hear about this?" <laughs> um, plus. I mean, on Twitter, Twitter was crazy today, trying yeah. to keep up with everybody talking about the new edition. And I, there were a few people who made comments, getting back to what you were talking about, is everyone going to drop fourth edition? Whether, you know, people who write blogs or they DM 4E campaigns, and they're like, yeah, I feel kind of unmotivated now. Um, but I think that'll pass. I know I'll continue playing the 4E, and I'll look forward to what they have next. But, you know, that's an individual thing, and I think each person will differ on that. I agree. I mean, I I ran three O for the longest time. Three five came and essentially took over. I'm like, okay, well, this doesn't really change my game. Four um, E came along. And I'm like, this also does not change my game. Mm-hmm. Um, this still works for me. And now the new stuff you're selling doesn't work with the game that I like to play. So I think where wizards has to go with this is they have to figure out how to not 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 attract customers because they have customers but they have Mm -hmm. to figure out how to sell them more things that work with the game that they want to play you know why am i going to buy a new core rule book of any game because it offers me something new that i'm interested in right Mm -hmm. you know so so from second edition to third edition you had this new idea of how skills worked. And it turned out that it was an awful close uh, kind of system to how I had hacked second edition to work, (laughs) which I thought was really funny. But, you know, it, it was, it was something viable enough to, to pull me into that next step. Fourth edition didn't have that. It, it, it really didn't. Like, it had new, new shiny stuff, so you, you caught a lot of new customers, but you're not supporting your old customers with that. And if this is what they're trying to do, they, you know, they, that's, that's where they're going to have to sort of figure out how to work that. So I think, uh, so I agree with you in terms of 
how the play test, the, the open play test could uh, really sort of draw in uh, new people, especially if they're going to listen to them um, as to how to uh, how to support them. And because I think that's one of the most important things. Well, I just have a quick question for everyone, because I think everyone, the rest of you are a bit more experienced uh, playing various editions of D&D compared to me. It seems like a lot of the talk about customizing the game and making it your own for the group you're playing with. Like, I feel like I'm able to do that in fourth edition. If I, if I don't want certain classes mm-hmm. in the game, I can, you know, meet with the group and come to an agreement on that. Or if you wanted to, say, do away with opportunity attacks across the board, I think that's a reasonable thing if you wanted to do. You could just do it in your game. But I don't know if it's the way fourth edition is presented or or what that, that limits people in, in terms of making it making the game their own. And I don't know if you guys have any insight on that. Well, um, what, what I think is that uh, fourth edition, um, uh, with the exception of like, you know, it's like with the player's handbook one, player's handbook two, that kind of thing. It's like you can, uh, it's modular to the extent that you decide what books you're including, and then you can, you know, pick individual classes or something, you know, within each book. But uh, but even something as seemingly simple as uh, um, ignoring attacks of opportunity um, uh, can actually have some, you know significant effects on how um you know the game plays that the designers might you know wouldn't have intended um and so they basically didn't design it for you to not have a tax of opportunity and if you you know you mess with that you know it's like any house rule you're you're kind of you may or may not get the effect you want um now in contrast uh if you look at like original D&D uh, way back in the day or the or the rule cyclopedia it has it had rules that were a lot more modular that you you could uh, um, like it had a very nice uh, mass combat system, for example. Um, no reason you don't you don't have to include it if you don't want it. Um, uh, uh, but if you do want it, it's right there. Um, they had uh, um, I'm totally blanking on other examples, but there are there are other things like this that mm-hmm. that you could include them or not include them, and, and because of the way because of the way the rules were structured and in the original. Uh, original uh, D&D, um, it was a lot easier for you to customize it without it, you know, impacting very, very core mechanics. And uh, um, and original D&D, just because of the way it was designed, um, it, it, it worked if you you know, played on a grid or, or without a grid. And, and it was just, it was just the, it, it, it's, it's kind of a thing that if the, if the designers are specifically keeping that kind of thing in mind, keeping cross-compatibility in mind and, and different play styles in mind, then they're more likely to get, um, you know, more, a more modular system. And this, this is, uh, um, like, uh, personally, I think one of the reasons why Saga Edition worked out as well as it did and was as popular as it was, was because, um, when, uh, when like me and Owen and, and Rodney Thompson were, uh, Owen Stevens and Rodney Thompson were, uh, um, um, uh, brought on board to, to to work on it. One of the things that I figured out, you know, we all kind of figured out, even though none of us would talk about it, was that oh, they're making a new edition of D and D, and that's why they have here's a new rule to try out. Here, let's play with this idea, that that kind of thing. And uh, um, so, one of the things that I did when I was going through and doing development and editing is I would always look at a rule from the perspective of okay, would something like this work? Outside of just the limited Star Wars context, um, and uh, 
And in other words, I was thinking about cross compatibility because I was kind of like, well, I would like this to be something that has enough in common with D&D that they are able to actually use some of it when they're doing their thing. And so since I was uh, since I always had that in the back of my mind of, you know, what happens if you're using a longsword instead of a blaster, um, you know, that it, hmm. it it inadvertently made the game pretty adaptable um and uh and uh i i heard of a lot of people like when fourth edition came out who, who had been playing saga edition they just made a they just made a D hack for for saga edition and they liked saw it that. edition. and uh um and that's part of what inspired me to do the e20 thing was i was like you know if, if i you know made something that uh, uh, had that kind of adaptability when i, I wasn't you know, trying that hard to do it. You know, what if I actually specifically tried to do it? You know, and it sounds to me from from the things that we're seeing in you know snippets from interviews and different reports from people who are who actually got to play some of the early uh, um, uh, development rules uh, uh, back in December. Um, it it really sounds like that's the kind of thing they're doing that they're specifically trying to make it uh, adapt to very different styles of play. And uh, I remember I don't remember which inter- uh, which uh, person it was that said this, but somebody he'd even mentioned specifically that it worked for um, both with and without a grid. Which I think tells you something mm-hmm. about the mentality they're taking going into it. Right. I saw, you, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, go well, ahead. I was going to say, with uh, even if you go back and look at first edition AD and D, if you look at the the DMG, the optional rules that they have throughout there um, really adds a lot to your play. Um, there's rules for laser guns and and six shooters in there as well as. Um, you know all the different other options that that they have. I think they even have rules for um, using hex grids, and that's just in in the first edition AD and D DMG. So I think that by hearkening back to that type of thing, where you have sort of scattered throughout, well, here's an optional rule you can use to cha- to change things to be more like this, change things to be more like that. That may be some of the customization. Right, we're looking at. and I, I think that fits well with the idea of sort of color coding different rule sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the the other thing that I want to definitely bring up is like like I really like like your uh, like the explanation of like the modular uh, the modular packages, and you definitely saw that both embedded in second edition D anD D, particularly with the birthright system for just grafting in completely new rule sets about how to manage a kingdom as opposed to how to be an adventurer running around. Um, but you also saw a sort of a fade out of that at the same time in some of the later uh, second edition books and certainly into third edition where basically what the books did is they extended the core rule set with like little pieces of different options. And, um, as as that got closer and closer to fourth edition, um, my personal experience, um, and this is just my taste in in books, is I found myself less and less drawn to these things uh, because I wanted new experiences, not just mm-hmm. like a new skin that I could put on a character. Yeah, and well, and so as 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 a GM, like new skins that I had to keep track of drove me crazy. Like I was uh-huh. all in for like I'm I'm a huge like role playing book reader. I've probably got two dozen different books in my bedroom right now, and you know I, I like to you know read and absorb lots of different ideas and you know mechanics and styles of play, um, and that's that's sort of what I'm interested in 
Um, and so I think it would be really fascinating to see uh, a progression of books and options that act, that actively added in new that that extended sort of like the core rules with new options as opposed to just like this piece of armor gives you plus seven to this other thing. And it's only if you're an elf from the underwater realms of Arcadia, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that I found interesting is that what I think that wizards didn't do with the additions that they've had so far is I don't think they've gone far enough. Um, if you look at third edition, there was a few really good books that came out from third party publishers mm-hmm. that did extend the rules for third edition and showed yes. how you do, can run a kingdom and how to how to do war. Um, actually, both of them were by AEG. They're two books that I have on my shelf, and they're one called War and one called Empire. And you can use a third edition rules for that type of thing, but Wizards never did it. And I think that Wizards should have been the ones who were leading the way in having mass combat and how to run a nation and things like that. And just coming out with more books that are, well, here's a couple more options for players, I don't think was the right direction for 3rd edition or 4th edition. I think that the direction they need to take is, look how much we can do. You know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I think uh, um, one of of their... uh, um, uh, approaches to it was they, in terms of uh, marketing, they always wanted to make uh, books that would appeal to, to players because the idea is that for every DM, there's, you know, three or more players that are in the game. And, uh, and uh, so if you make a book that's just for the DM, you're, you're pretty much almost by definition, not going to sell as many of them as if it had, you know, a bunch of players options. Right. And uh, uh, so on a lot of their books, they, they probably went a little too far in just catering to making sure players had, you know, neat new toys to play with. Um, but uh, um, uh, there, there, there were a few books where they, they, you know, kind of went in the direction that you're talking about. Like uh, um, one of the books I edited for, for D&D, um, uh, was a um, uh, heroes uh, heroes of battle was all about yes. you know a uh, you know um, uh, do, running a large military you know kind of campaign, mm-hmm. um, but even then it didn't really have a, a good solid mass combat system that you know that really really did what, what a lot of people would want it to do. I remember um, that book because, distinctly. Yeah, I, I remember that book distinctly, and it drove me crazy because I it it was so close to what I wanted and didn't I know. quite do it. Oh. I know exa- I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I was editing it and not writing it, and I was kind of like, "Oh, why don't you have this?" You know, um, mm-hmm. but 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 yeah, it's that they they um, just they, it's I think that their focus on on make sure there's stuff for players sometimes became too dominant of a focus, um, and and you know, you compare that to like Saga Dish, which uh, which obviously didn't have enough. Um, uh, is large of a player base, so they couldn't afford to to divvy up their their uh, their GM books and player books mm-hmm. or anything. And we would we, uh, every single book had some player stuff and some GM stuff just because they we had to by necessity. Right. And I think that 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 kind of balance where you have you know a solid two or three chapters of you know new crunchy bits for players, uh, and then pretty much the whole rest of the book is all uh, all stuff for the DM. Um, I, I think that 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 can work, and I hope that they take that kind of approach uh in in a in the new edition because i think that that makes it more um uh i think that makes it more um appealing to a broader set of uh of um uh to to a broader set of uh uh, potential customers and here's the thing in in my experience 
players don't buy books at all. It's always the the GM or the DM who is always the one buying the books, and then the players just use the show books up. that the DM has. Yeah, the players well, just show I, up. I, I will, so I will I say that's not, that's not universal. I know among my players, about half of them buy books. And, uh, um, I mean, obviously I'm not typical you know, because, I mean, there are players that hang out with a guy who, like, you know, makes this kind of crap. Um, but, you know, it was, it was still – it was still the, the – that was still true when we were in high school though. So um, – mm-hmm. and I, I don't know. It's, it's not uncommon for other people to report that, um, that uh, almost every player will have a copy of a player's handbook or, or uh, for Star Wars, almost everybody will have a copy of the core rule book. That, yeah, so that's – it's not uncommon for everyone to have one, um, but it is less common for anybody but the GM to – be seriously invested in how many books are on the table, and that's yeah. that. That part I think is is you know definitely accurate. But I, think that, I just think that's a that's a challenge for them going forward is to how do you make the books or the PDFs or whatever they're going to market apply not only to the DM who's running the game but also to the players. How can you make that material attractive for the players to have? Because um, my group is it's about split. You know, there's some players who have the books, and I've had to tell one player in particular when he knew I was running uh, the Tomb of Horrors, he's like, okay, I won't read it. I have it, but I won't read it, um, which was funny. Um, but, you know, I think the players, and I wrote about this last week, is the players can show up, run their character, and that's that. Um, and it's the DM who has to, you know, learn, really learn the ins and outs of the mechanics and create and run the game. Um, so trying to create materials and market them to make them more attractive and really useful to players would be something that would be cool to see. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I, I'm, yeah, just, to, just to jump back to my sort of the digital kind of idea, you could even probably do something like that with like, uh, like micropayment kinds of things. And, um, have uh, have a book sort of sold on sort of like you know the you know how D twenty Pro which is the uh, the tabletop software you know how those licenses work like the GM has to get a license oh, yeah, yeah. which allows yeah. like clients it's like to a tabletop to it. thing yeah 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 it's it's basically like tabletop software for your computer but the way they do it is that the GM can support up to X number of players with uh, a single license. And, you know, and then the players have limited access to do things, but uh, they get to play on there for free. So maybe if there's some sort of, uh, like, micropayment kind of idea where they get a, um, they can they can buy things in little bits and pieces as they want it. And then, you know, their GM is also gets access to it if they sort of register that gaming group together. Yeah. Well, one, th- one thing that I've heard somebody mention um, in the past that they would that they would like to see that actually makes a lot of sense to me is if you're going to have these customizable rules, if they had a sort of print-on-demand service where you, as the DM, you pick and chose your rules for your campaign, um, and then you sort of <clears throat> went you, you did a print-on-demand, and your players could order those books as well. Yes, print-on-demand is, is a bit more expensive than just going to the store and buying one. But if you said, this is our campaign rule book, and you could even have, like, 
um, you choose a piece of, of art from the D and D catalog that's on the cover of your book and you have, and you choose the text that's on the cover. And this is our campaign. This is we're going to be running with. Everybody needs to buy a copy of this book from wizard site. Everybody buys it. And it has all the rules in there. It, not, none of the rules that you're not going to use, um, mm-hmm. all the classes that you are allowed to use, none of the classes you aren't allowed to use. I think it'd be really, really cool. Um, and that's for me, it feels like a pipe dream. I would love to see it, but it also seems like it would be, you know, I'm not sure how successful that would be because you'd have a lot of people who would just rail against. Having oh, sure. But I mean, with the print on demand, like basically you set up the infrastructure and then you have this awesome customizable thing for your campaign. It's exactly. a really fun old school idea, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I could see there being something like that, but I do think that since they've made such a point about we want to reach out to players of editions other than 4th edition, we want to be more inclusive, get fans of all editions involved, there's going to have to have a player's handbook in Dungeon Master's Guide. I mean, this is the the default rule set in hardback format. And, um, and, And while I think you're right that taking advantage of technology has a lot of opportunities, and I hope they I hope they use those, too, for people who want them, I definitely think the default rule set will be the traditional three books. And, and I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree too. So what do you guys, what would you guys like to see from D and D next? What would be your ideal version of the game? You've only had like less than 24 hours to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been thinking about hours. what I want from D and D for a long time. <laughs> well, well, what is it? What would you like? Um, so I would like to see, uh, in addition to, uh, like the, the, the core rule books that, that work really nicely. Um, I would like to see something that works like the way D20 SRD and the Pathfinder SRD work, where you can get, uh, core rule books available anytime, wherever you are. And that's yeah. that's developed like as an app for offline use. That's developed for mobile, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's that that kind of thing is useful to me. Um, and as far as content comes out, I would be really interested to see um, smaller, lighter weight books, sort of like the D and D's Essentials okay. uh, kinds of mm-hmm. things, for adding on uh, player options and uh, fuller. Uh, things like setting books, which really don't feel to currently uh, in, in sort of the fourth edition series of things, they don't feel to me like they're full enough for the GM. Like I'm, I'm, I, I come pretty heavily from second edition and those box sets where you got like this whole box of setting information like mm-hmm. I really, really miss that wealth of information in the different setting rule books, and that is what I would like to see. Excellent. Cool. What about you, Jen? I think I want to see. I mean, like I've I've played D and D for a little bit, but I've gone more into like the indie stuff. You know, more storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see if they're ever going to go. You know, touch upon that at all, or if they're just going to stay strictly what they've always been. Um, Would you like them to touch upon that more? Yeah, I mean, like, being able to reward players for for playing up their characters and and really getting into it instead of just being like, I hit them with my sword. Woo! 
<laughs> like, I, I think it would definitely be valuable for them to learn something from what indie games, like the direction indie games have gone. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think at the same time, though, you might alienate the the old school players that yeah. you're trying to get to yeah. come back into the game. But I, yeah, mm-hmm. I would love to see that as well. I think it'd be fantastic. option books. Yeah, totally. yeah, exactly, exactly. As a with a customizable rule set, In- indie style, you can definitely do that. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think as long as they uh, um, make it as modular as they're talking about. Um, I mean, it, uh, honestly, I would just like to see D and D, you know, do the kinds of things that I'm doing. You know. <laughs> Um, uh, because I mean, there's a reason I'm making it that way. Cause that's what I wish D and D would do. Um, yeah. and, uh, I mean, things like you can add, uh, uh, new dimensions to classes without having to invent new classes all the time. That's one of the things that, you know, like in third edition, there were 10 million prestige classes and eventually they started adding more base classes in uh fourth edition, just 10 million different classes. And, and it, it just, it, 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 it's kind of overwhelming after a while, you know? And, uh, I think it's a little better to add, you know, like here's a new thing you can do with a rogue, rather than here's a new here's an assassin class. You well, know, like they did with well, uh, with Saga Edition. You guys uh, had yeah, exactly. only like five we, we classes, had, right? We had the same five classes, and we used them all the time. We never added new ones. We had prestige classes, but that was it. Um, and uh, um, I think that uh, that um, keeping it to where because that's another thing to make sure that it's it's more adaptable to different play styles. Um, you don't want to have somebody come into a game who's used to playing some obscure class from, you know, uh, the the fourth player's handbook or something, um, and then sit down with people who only play with the core. You know, and it's like I'm a ch- I'm a shadow chaser. It's like what the hell was that? You know, um, yeah. you let them basically make it where oh I'm a wizard who does this particular um, school of magic. Oh, okay, you're a wizard. Sit down. You know, <laughs> yeah, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, so that's an example of something I think I really would like them to do is make the classes themselves modular. Um, so, and so, someone earlier had mentioned the idea of making it where there's basically a pre-built version of a class where all the, instead of you having to pick powers and all that other stuff, you just have, oh, at, at fourth level you get cleave, and if at, you know eighth level you get whirlwind attack or whatever. Um, instead of just having it where you know you have a, a whole bunch of powers to choose from, um, and and then have your your basically your your build a class option where you decide what type of fighter you want to be and then later on you expand on that by giving more of those type, of those uh, types of options um, but uh, uh, one of the thing I, I honestly I don't know if wizards would ever do this but I, I really hope they do is um, um, to, to, to go for more of a more of an iTunes model of how you sell rules you know it's like make it where you can sell a whole book but you can also sell um like imagine if you had a book of of uh you know prestige classes or themes or whatever the hell you want to call them um and uh you know you sell it for you know twenty dollars but you could also say you want to buy one class that's a dollar you know (laughs) um you know the idea is that you get a better you know bargain if you're buying the whole book but if you're really honestly interested in just one or two things just buy those two I think that honestly would probably work better for them in the long run, and uh, I mean it certainly seems to work for for uh, for other um, um, for other media. And uh, you could look at the way that um, <clears throat> like uh, Super Genius Games does uh, uh, their products. They basically, for the most part, do fairly small products that they sell, and they're like just you know a c- couple of bucks each. Um, and the idea is that each individual product is a very small buy-in, so it's not that much of an investment for you to decide. Oh, what the hell? I'll try this one out. You know, um, and if they, if they did that in addition to making compilations and larger books that have, you know, um, 
that, that are larger and printed and hardcover and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think they could have more crossover appeal, and they could get players to spend more money on things. If if you're a fighter and you hear about this really cool, you know, uh, prestige class that's in a particular, you know, book, in, instead of you having to go and get the book, you could just, you know, download that one thing and pay your dollar. Um, but uh, also on the on the topic of things to, um, you know, help broaden the game the the most important thing i want to see in fifth edition or whatever they end up calling it is uh um i would really really like them to go back to something that's more like the original open game license the the game system license in fourth edition is just it there's there's a reason so many people jump ship it it may it was so restrictive in what you could and couldn't do within that license that it made it where people couldn't make their own games that are closely related and um i know i know a lot of people um, uh, you know, question whether the uh, open game license was a good idea or not because it kind of, you know, you could say it fragmented things. Um, but at the same time, they may have all been fragmented, but it had a whole bunch of fragments in the same area, the same sector of D20-ness. And that, there's there's a reason that, that was a big boom in uh, in uh, um, in uh, role-playing game, uh, tabletop role-playing games as a whole. Um, and so I, I think that going back to something like that would be good. I mean, if they, if they want to have uh, a stricter quality control, fine, but still make the, the basic, you know, s- core system rules available, you know, and, uh, um, and I think quali- quality control will go a long ways towards avoiding some of the issues that came up with the original D20 system thing, um, you know, with like everybody and their dog making role-playing b- books and a lot of them don't have any idea how to do it, you know. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, still, that, but like... Go ahead. That, that's, that, I think that's definitely one of the major things that has kept third third edition alive and well to this day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, d- despite, you know, the, the boom of crap that's out there, there's also tons of good stuff that has kept it alive. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm just agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think the, what you said, Gary, about um, the smaller modules, I've seen it. My friend does stuff for traveler and he puts it out, you know, like you just small lists for like, 50 cents. And he says, like, his biggest sales are some of those things, like the smaller pieces that people can download and and use. Exactly. Because, I mean, you know, spending, you know, $20, $30 on a rule book is, I mean, uh, a lot of people who are playing are like, you know, kids. I mean, they're like, you know, if you're 15, you don't even have a job yet. You might not have 20 bucks lying around, but you're almost certainly going to have a dollar, you know? Um, yeah, and, and, and uh, it's like apps, too. You know, like you're sitting on your phone, yeah, exactly. and you're like, oh, what is this? This is two dollars. Of course, I'm going to buy this. Like four dollars? Exactly. Why not? <laughs> before you know, you spend sixty dollars on apps. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's exactly. just like going and to the, the comic. Thing. They're still stuff. getting. They're, they ultimately get the same amount of money, or if not more. Um, but you are able to to target your individual dollars a little bit more to your liking, and that's why it 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 works so well as a model, and that's why it worked for iTunes selling songs for a dollar, uh, which I remember way back in the day, people, uh, when iTunes first came out, people thought, this will never work, and you mm-hmm. look at it, and yep. then you have the same thing with app store pricing. It's, you know, mm-hmm. you buy an app for a dollar, two dollars, and, you know, it, it's it's just too convenient not to do it, and that's and that's the way you, that's the way you, you broaden the game and make it something that, that uh, very new people don't feel like they have to make a huge investment to try to, to try to learn it. Right. Absolutely. You start with a, a relatively inexpensive core book, and and yeah, you just add those pieces on. Yeah. Exactly. So who's next? Who else would 
like to uh, talk about what they'd like to see? I'll jump in. This is Michael, the online DM. So a few things. I'll kind of throw out a list. I'd like to see uh, some option for a wizard that still has something like an at-will spell, either the Pathfinder style or or D&D 4th edition style, where they're not reduced to using a crossbow. Um, I'd like to not see a reversion to the linear warrior as quadratic wizards system where, you know, wizards are terrible at first level and all-powerful at 15th level, that kind of thing. I I like there's a focus on class balance. I'm not sure that's going to happen, but but I'd like it. Um, I like... I like, honestly, I like the Digest-style books that they printed for the Essentials line. Um, I don't expect them to come back just because it's not traditional, and I think that they do have a big influence, uh, a big emphasis on traditional for this new edition. Mm. But uh, still, I think that's something that I, I would like to see in the future. Uh, I'd like to see something of a more... It doesn't have to be more open license necessarily, but something to encourage uh, third-party publishers, like, for instance... Uh, giving them some way of getting their content into whatever the character builder becomes, because I know that's a big obstacle for a lot of third-party publishers. You know, we can make some cool stuff, but if players can't find it in the character builder, they just might not use it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think uh, I think with the modularity, the game would probably benefit from different modules for different level tiers. Like I could see. Um, if it were 4th edition released in a modular way, you have the heroic tier and then a separate book for the paragon tier and a separate book for the epic tier and have them actually play differently because they do play differently, frankly, at the table. Mm-hmm. And if they want to go more modular, that might be one way to do it so mm-hmm. that the initial upfront purchase is a little bit more uh, digestible. You don't have 30 levels of here's what happens to your character throughout their path um, all at once. Right. Didn't uh, that's you, uh, a, that's actually Dragon a good Age idea. Uh, well, I, I was I was going to say that like uh, original D and D did that. When you think about the the basic box, the expert box, all yeah, the way up to like the immortal rules, and and yeah, I mean that that's that's certainly something that would fit D and D. It would feel old school, and yet it would have that kind of modularity that they're looking for. And that yeah. that that might be a uh, that that may hit the nail on the head right there. And yeah. more recently, it was uh, was it Dragon Age that did that. Yeah, their first yeah. box was like yeah. the first three levels, and then they were one to five and five to ten or something like that. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Let's see. Have we gotten everybody, or is do we do we still have I, one more left? I yeah, I can jump more. in just real yeah. quick. Absolutely. Um, so a, a few things that I would like, and something I've talked about a lot, and actually done some research on, is just the the combat speed issue, which I know mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people have discussed. And I think uh, from the early reports that I read today, people who have actually played the game, it seems like they're shooting for combat that's resolved much more rapidly, um, which I think is a good thing. Although I'm, I'm curious to see how they'll balance out because sometimes it is fun to have, you know, a two-hour-long slugfest with a really interesting encounter design. Um, but there's other times where, you know, you should just be able to blitz through a combat or two pretty quickly. Um, just the fact that it takes about a minute or two for each player to get off their round, um, it adds up. So I think that's going to be one, one thing that... Um, well, I'm looking forward to to see how they resolve that. Um, just another one quick thing. I know a few people were mentioning to me on Twitter today, um, kind of separating gold from magic items and trying to fix the economy a little bit as it is current, <laughs> as it is currently in fourth edition. Yeah. Um, that's something else. I did some tables on it, and you know, if you add up what the suggested tre- treasure parcels are, it just it it doesn't really make much sense. So. Um, maybe separating out gold from magic items, keeping magic items more rare and more interesting and from, you know, add more story elements to them. And, and the final thing that is more of a global thing from my 
point of view. I'm, I'm a psychologist by trade, so I'm always interested in how they can increase the focus on group dynamics. I always say that regardless of the mechanics, regardless of the system, you're sitting around talking to people. And just the fact that, you know, the game's a very social activity, there's a lot of group dynamics involved. It'd be interesting if they had a section of, you know, the player's handbook or the core rules or something that talked about some of the issues that come up around the table when you're trying to play a cooperative game like uh, D&D. So I think that'd be helpful for both players and DMs out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they've done a little bit of that, in the at least in the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide, you know, talking about different players want different things and here's how to make everybody happy. But, but I agree, that's, that's something that's important, if, especially if you're going to be the DM. Yeah. And I would want to mention one other thing I thought of. Um, this is something I wrote about a couple of weeks ago before I knew that this new edition was coming, but there were a lot of rumors. And, and that is, I, I, I think they're already doing this, and I just hope they keep making it a priority, which is basically good community relations as they develop this new edition. And frankly, the open play test goes miles toward making that happen. But I know... I was not around, you know, I only started playing at the beginning of 2010, so I was not around for the the third edition to fourth edition um, switchover. But I know that a lot of people, just from reading message boards, really got irked by some of the comments that came out of Wizards of the Coast. Um, Just designers talking about the game and, and even some things in the books that made them feel like, uh, they were putting down the old edition and, and, and that kind of thing. And it gave people the wrong idea, or maybe the right idea. I don't know. Perhaps all the people there were horrible at the time, but, but I don't think so. And I think right now it seems like Wizards of the Coast is doing the right thing by trying to get community input through the Legends and Lore columns and things like that, and especially this, this open play test. And I just hope they, they keep that focus there, make sure that people have a chance to be heard and, and try not to come across as dismissive, even though in the end they will have to make choices and there will be some things in the new game that people won't like. Um, mm-hmm. but, but phrasing that the right way and putting a, an emphasis on you know, being inclusive and open, I think will, will help a lot. And I'd really like to see the addition the wars minimize. They're not going to go away, but I'd like to see them minimize as we can move to whatever comes next. I agree. If yeah. I could have, yeah. uh, ex- expand on that, the, the, uh, the, the whole staying in contact and good community relations. Uh, one thing, um, uh, I was a, uh, um, uh, a moderator for Wizards of the Coast, a, a Wizzo, they were called at the time, um, for, uh, for many, many years. And then right around the time they, uh, they launched 4th uh, Edition, they um, increasingly turned the moderators into a um, uh, basically customer service reps where you weren't you know, participating in the community as much as you were resolving issues, you know. And and one thing that, that I think that they lost in that process was that the having the people who were, you know, official representatives of the company, even if they weren't designers, just the fact that they're there and they're present and they're participating in conversations in addition to doing moderation um, was something that, that made people feel like they're being heard. And I, I know that as a, as a Wizzo, something I did was I would often like uh, this before I even started uh, um, actually designing for the game uh, professionally, I would collect questions on like the Star Wars role-playing game and then I would basically uh, get in touch with the, the designers directly and say, hey, uh, here's like five questions that have come up and and I said I hope you don't mind me sending you. I said no, I I, I love it. It's it, it it saves me the trouble of having to go hunt for questions, uh, you know, to have somebody you know kind of you know uh, find them. But but uh, uh, that that particular designer was uh, J D Weicker who who did a really good job of being active on the forums. And I what I hope is that they they go more out of their way to have a more um, a more robust presence 
in forums and, and in chat and you know things like that where they where people feel like they're being directly talked to and and uh, uh, and that they can actually interact with with uh, the designers themselves and and I mean you know even if it's something as little as uh, you know uh, set aside thirty minutes a day. To, at the beginning of your day to just go through the, you know, kind of breeze through the forum, see what you can find that looks like an interesting topic, pop in, give your two cents. Um, you never know. I mean, just something as simple as that makes a huge difference in the way that, that people, you know, perceive the, the, the designers as whether they're, you know, one of us or just people off in some room somewhere, you know. And, uh, and, and, you know, and there's a lot of really important feedback that you get because sometimes you'll you'll find out about a major issue solely because people were talking about it and because you just had never come across it in, in your own play tests uh, you know so uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's so staying involved in that way uh, uh, it, it makes the company look better and it makes people feel more engaged and that kind of engagement is something I hope they can move closer to because in the, the last few years it just really hasn't been there absolutely I think that Staying in contact with your players and um, good community relations. Uh, maybe, maybe doing going back and having the the wizos who contact direct, speak directly with the designers would be something that would be good to see. So, yeah. um, well, I think I think we, well, I don't think we've covered everything, but I think we've covered <laughs> everything we're going to talk about for tonight. So, does anybody else have any closing thoughts? Excited to see what comes next. Yeah. I'm waiting for my crafting rules. (laughs) (laughs) And I I stayed away. I typically stay away from forums, but just being on Twitter and seeing people react, I've been pleasantly surprised that there's been a lot of positive vibe to the conversation. Um, Perhaps I'm just staying away from the negative stuff, but it does seem that people are excited about it, and I'm certainly one of them. So it was a a good day to be a D&D fan. Absolutely. So, uh, would everybody like to do a uh, a plug of their sites and what what you guys are up to? Sure thing. Why don't you call us off? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and start with Michael One. We'll call that uh, Michael from the DM. <laughs> sure. So the DM, go ahead, Ed. Uh, yes. So I have a blog. I, I post pretty regularly, maybe one or two articles a week. It's the idm.wordpress.com. And I, you can also find me on Twitter at the IDDM, and that's IDDM. Excellent. Uh, Michael Two, the online dungeon master. Sure. So, yeah, um, you can find me at uh, onlinedm.wordpress.com. Someday soon it will be at onlinedungeonmaster.com, but I'm doing the transition right now. Uh, or on Twitter at uh, as onlinedm1. Excellent. Jen. Uh, just check out my show. I do interviews. It's called Genisodes. And you can find me online at genesodes.com and Twitter as genesodes. Excellent. Tim? My podcast is called Dice Food Lodging. You can find it at dicefoodlodging.com or on iTunes. And I'm on Twitter and talk about all manner of game stuff at Dice Food Lodging. <laughs> Excellent. And finally, Gary? Um, you can uh, find my website at gmsarleygames.com. That's uh, G-M-S-A-R-L-I games.com. And uh, I'm also on, on Twitter as uh, at gmsarley. Um, also, have, you know, Facebook and Google+. Plus, But you can find all that on my, on my way, main website. And uh, on Twitter, I uh, you'll find me talking about games and just other random crap that comes off the top of my head uh, pretty much all the time. So uh, I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a lot of fun to follow. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I can vouch for that, yes. And uh, last of all, myself, I'm the host, so if you don't know what my uh, my stuff is, then shame on you. Uh, I'm uh, Mark Meredith on Twitter, and I've got DiceMonkey.net, and then also here on the Tome Show feed, I've got the, the standard Dice Monkey radio episodes. So that's all we have for tonight. Thanks for tuning in.